Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of They Defined, the podcast looking past the binaries that divide us to hear the complex stories that define us. So this episode is a conversation with Adam Elliott Cooper, who, full disclosure, is one of my best mate's brothers. But he also just wrote an incredible book called Black Resistance to British Policing, where he explores the history and politics that has created the racist police structure in Britain today, and the wonderful work of activists pouring their hearts into creating institutions, movements, and mentalities that seek to care for our society and the people in it, instead of punishing them and policing them. Adam is wonderfully eloquent and so easy to understand when it comes to very complex issues. Adam doesn't think there's a silver bullet or some simple way out of the political place we find ourselves in today, but he does encourage a positive and hopeful outlook, celebrating the huge variety of different voices coming together to create a better society. And while we all may lose hope every then and again, there are many small victories that we can't forget about. So without further ado, I'll let Adam take the mic and talk to us about the reality that we face and the work being done to improve it. I don't know if there is necessarily a single story that I can think of that helps me to make sense of the world. I guess one of the main stories that I think about a lot um, is the story of, I guess, my mother arriving in Britain from a British colony, St Lucia, uh, in the 1960s, and arriving uh, age 10 on, on a boat, which just isn't something people do very often across the Atlantic these days, and having experience that's of Hackney in northeast London that's very different to the Hackney that we might know today. Today we know Hackney as this place of multiculturalism, of left-wing politics, of anti-racism, and of, I guess, progressive, relatively liberal values. Um, But when she arrived in Hackney, it was a different place. It was a place where certain areas had strong fascist strongholds. It was a part of London where there was a great deal of racism and deprivation It was a place where they had to struggle. And I think that realising that Hackney didn't become the place that it is today by accident or naturally, but arrived where it is today through struggle, I think helps me to better appreciate and better situate how, as black communities, we are agents of history. And through small or large acts we can fundamentally change not simply our communities and our cities, but the con- our countries and, and the world in ways that provide more safety, more security and better futures for the generation that come after us. Good answer. I'm glad I, I, I was like hesitant about because usually much more sort of to your book here. I was hesitant about going for a personal question to begin the story about that. And, uh, and that, that uh, like directs us in, in, into, into your book. Uh, and into like um, how how it begins, which I mean, the, literally the the first chapter is um, uh, we did not sin. Um, like racism wasn't the result of a foreign arrival. 
um, like, and, and you talk about this in the book, so this is kind of for listeners, but so where I would where be cautious about thinking the about racism as being a black white. Where, where did that because um, we see racism emerging foreign um, begin before if it wasn't emerging upon in, the foreign uh, arrival the 16 in Britain. and 1700s through an economic and political necessity. And this and this arises through two or three key moments in history. The first is of course the European settlement or colonization of the Americas, what they like to call the discovery of the new world. And of course the second thing is the emergence of the transatlantic slave trade. And so race as we know it today isn't simply a black white binary. It is a way of categorizing different human beings in order to exploit them differently and in order to impose violence upon them differently. So while people racialized as black from the African continents were exploited in a very specific way through chattel slavery, we see the indigenous people of the Americas racialized quite differently. And they're racialized in a way which seeks to exterminate um, and invisibilize these people. And I think that's one of the way, one of the reasons that the impression is created that racism is this black and white binary, because there are other racialized groups, principally the indigenous peoples of the Americas, who don't fit into this black and white binary because the projects of, of white supremacy is for them to disappear completely. I don't think that we should allow white supremacy to do that. And so while we're often told that racism began with not liking other people and then that led to not doing very nice things to them, I would, I would say that the opposite is in fact true. And that the profit and power that arose from the colonization of the Americas and from the transatlantic slave trade needed justification, right? needed to be rationalized. And the way it was justified and rationalized was through racism and through identifying people as being part of different so-called races, therefore placing them into a hierarchy, which enabled Europe to differently exploit and differently impose violence and control upon these differently racialized categories of people. That's interesting. Like I originally phrased that question as sort of the a, a binary which is more sort of oppressed and oppressor and noticed the use of sort of politically black in your reflection on the writings of anti-racist writers who the use of black was not the more typical understanding of what a black person is but it was those who were exploited by colonial or imperial powers that began with this need to to justify the uh, means by which the the profits were gained and in terms of those colonial roots something that i I, I really like the, the way you reflect on is uh, the colonial roots of respectability. And I was wondering if you could expand on what the role of respectability and the respectable myth has played in the maintenance of white supremacy. So the idea of respectable and respect, respectable families and respectable gender and sexual roles is a really fundamental component of the establishment and maintenance of both capitalism and colonialism. So in the 18th and 19th centuries, as capitalism emerges and kind of displaces feudalism, we see people move from um, an economy where pe people are peasants and toilers on the land 
and moving to where people are engaged in what we call wage to labor right you go to uh, a factory or a mill and you earn a wage you are paid in money and it's through the emergence of this new class of people that arises in the 18th and 19th centuries, this industrial middle class, or what we might call the bourgeoisie, in which the man goes out to work and earns a wage, and the woman stays at home and raises the family, that we see this, this new conception of the family arise in which the idea of a honourable, respectable family becomes really fundamental to European governance. And the idea here is that if there is a strict and coherent hierarchy within the home, the private sphere, with the man at the top of the hierarchy and the women and children at the bottom in these very clear, fixed, gendered categories, then people will respect the hierarchy of the public sphere, the nation, and will respect this state patriarch, right, the, the monarch or the government taking power over the nation, and of course, the equivalent of the women and children, the people being below them in that hierarchy. And so what European nations sought to do in that part of their colonizing projects wasn't simply subjugating people on the grounds of race and class, but was also seeking to impose these gendered norms upon these colonized populations identifying the facts that in the Americas and Africa and Asia and Australasia, people lived in extended family networks and didn't have these kind of strict gendered binaries necessarily, and certainly didn't have the kind of um, gendered roles in relation to work and care that were being um, imposed in industrialising Europe in the 18th and 19th centuries. And so part of the colonising project to discipline and control these colonized populations involved imposing this what we call a nuclear family right what we might call a heteronormative family order of a male and a female um, uh, headed household um, with children and it was through this process that an idea of a respectable and a non-respectable family became established um, emerging out of Europe as I mentioned spreading to other parts of the colonized world. That leads me on to the next bit and the bit that really interested me was was how respectability was subverted and and how myths around the black family were also shifted through the work of black women and, and the black mother. And I was wondering if you could talk to me about how both the black family is a space for resisting the way these kinds of respectable elements have been created to have power over those individuals and also exploit black families and black people and how black women and black mothers have engaged in an activism and a fight that has managed to use those tools or simply find new ways for well the the children that they lose so i think there's a number of things happening that are really interesting in the way in which Black communities are resisting policing in both historical and contemporary Britain. Many of these community campaigns are led by women, mothers, partners, sisters, who have lost loved ones at the hands of the police or other state agencies. And I think a strategic thing that is done in a lot of these campaigns is an articulation of these campaigns not simply as a movement of resistance against policing, but a grieving family member. 
which of course on the one hand pushes back against the stereotype of the neglectful or or chaotic black family member and pushes back against notions of black single parenthood and the purported chaos of the black family that you see being perpetuated by people like Sean Bailey or Tony Saul who were associated with the current conservative party in this country. But what it also does is it expands the notion of family. It doesn't simply see family as this biological relationship between a mother um, and a child or a sister and a sibling. It sees, it understands family as something which goes beyond that, which incorporates notions of community, incorporates ideas of political campaign groups and organisations. And so when people are articulating a resistance led by families, they include community and other people for whom they're developing links of solidarity, thus disrupting the imposition of this heteronormative nuclear family, disrupting the idea that the family is this unit of hierarchy that should only exist within the home, and crucially as well, disrupting the idea that the hierarchy of the family should reflect the hierarchy of the nation. And so it's through these kinds of quite radical campaigns, I would say, against state violence, that we can think through the ways in which not only policing is gendered as well as being classed and racialized but also how the resistance to policing is also seeking to dismantle gendered as well as racial and classed hierarchies i love that yeah i mean your your book is reflecting specifically on on policing it's funny that the space of and the symbol of community and love and care that these women and these campaigns symbolize sort of break the binary offer this this counterbalance to what is um supposed to be as you say these these sort of chaotic symbols of of careless mothers and how the sort of perpetuation of a myth that well whether it's stephen lawrence or another young black boy or man has passed away as a result of the neglect of the community and instead of the failures of police to see the humanity of these young victims of racism and racist crime. Do you feel there has been any progress as a result of these campaigns in the way police or attitudes around policing deal with the loss of life and the abuse of young black, predominantly men or boys? I would say there's been a really significant progress in the way in which these movements have been articulating resistance. And I think one of the most clear to me, um, I think goes back to one of the examples you mentioned before, about the example of Doreen Lawrence. So the Stephen Lawrence campaign wasn't just about the racist killing of Stephen Lawrence and the police failure to respond effectively to his murder. It was also crucially about identifying the fact that the police are institutionally racist, that the normal functioning of policing produces racist outcomes. The problem, however, with this campaign was that the reforms that were being proposed only dealt with the um, superficial issues with policing. They argued for more diversity, more training, some, some sections of accountability, and other kinds of reforms which would, on the one hand, 
treat policing as if it is this objective, fair, neutral institution for which racist or anti-racist policies and practices can be poured, rather than understanding policing as being fundamentally racist. I think the second thing that's crucial about it is that in providing scope for the police to incorporate diversity initiatives and training and accountability community boards and things like that, this opened up an opportunity for the police to better justify the policing that they do, to better rationalise their existence. And I think the failure of the McPherson inquiry that came out of the Stephen Lawrence campaign to really improve the experience of policing and the criminal justice system for black communities in Britain led to a more radical set of demands arising in this country in the decades that that followed, which is why by 2016, 2017, and certainly by 2020, we see movements like Black Lives Matter not demanding for diversity and better training um, and for accountability, but are instead arguing for alternatives to the police and criminal justice system as we know it arguing that the expansion of our police and prison system, which has continued in perpetuity over the last 30 or 40 years, almost doubling our prison population since the early 1990s, expanding police and prison powers for a wave of different reforms, hasn't improved community safety, hasn't reduced harm in our society, and certainly hasn't dealt effectively with questions of racism and discrimination. And so instead, what we need to do is erode society's reliance on an ever-expanding police and prison system and replace those forms of punishment, violence and control with better housing, better youth services, better mental health provision, better supports for survivors of domestic violence and child abuse, better support for people with addiction problems, secure jobs and, and better unions, all of the types of things that can enable people to not come into contact with the police and prison system in the first place. So it's through the arguments that seek to actually erode prison and police power rather than reinforcing police and prison power through these more superficial reforms, that I think we've seen the greatest progress in black resistance to British policing over the last 20 years. And, and, and I, I like the way you talk about police justifying their own presence. And, and that's sort of the wonderful thing about the binary of, uh, well, almost drawing battle lines by which the police are battling against, which justifies the sort of militarization and warlike mentality of your subjects, or or even worse, those you dominate over as requiring uh, correction through state machinery. And it requires sort of uh, a recognition of humanity and a pursuit of peace, not sort of maintaining of the peace for the ruling community but a piece that once again pushes past the binary between domination and dominated yeah i think it's important to to move beyond these kinds of binaries and think about a an an alternative vision for the world in which all people are liberated from institutions of of domination it was interesting to look at the way you looked at history and anti-racist movements from different moments in time and different places in the world pushing towards uh, a collective justice yeah definitely and it's about making those kind of historical and international connections as best we can 
yeah, and, and, and I mean, speaking about that history, um, you t one thing that I, I sort of found really interesting to kind of get my head around was uh, the way different things are defined. You talk about um, the sort of amorphous concept of gangs and gangsters um, that kind of provide a malleable grammatical or semantic tool with which the police can play and, and choose the areas or individuals that they uh, persecute. And the idea of sort of racist grammar, which came from Horton Spiller, who, uh, I'll, I'll read the quote, uh, which comes from the semantic and iconic folds buried deep in the collective past. And I was wondering if you could tell me about how those semantics or, or the, the concept of how grammar is a tool for structuring conceptually the domination of individuals or the oppression of individuals. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how that grammar and those words have worked, whether that's historically or right now with gangs or uh, other terminology. So I think language is a really useful way of understanding the ways in which racism seeks to dehumanize different categories of people in order to exploit them differently or impose violence and control upon them differently. And one of the ways in which I seek to do that is through this idea of the gang. So gang crime, um, which I'm sure many people who are listening to this are relatively familiar, is a phenomenon which has grown in popularity in the column inches of newspapers and in the speeches of politicians and in the policy proposals of police forces over the last 10 or 20 years. But crucially, gang crime is not a crime in and of itself. It's a category of crime. And it's through these categories of crime that we see a number of already existing offences being vacuumed up. So uh, gang crime can um, be associated with forms of uh, the distribution of criminalised drugs, or it might be associated with forms of violence or harm, um, or other forms of criminalised activity. And so what vacuuming up all of these already existing uh, criminal offences into this new category of crime, gang crime does, is it creates the impression of a new problem, of a different problem. And if there is a purportedly new and different problem, it can be attributed to a new and different people. And it is, in the case of gangs, young black people um, who are purportedly new and un-British to which this category of crime is attributed. But what I seek to do in the book is to think about the history of this language of gangs, because the, the, the 21st century wasn't the first time in which Britain uses the term gangs to uh, identify a category of uh, crime or deviance and impose that and associate that with black um, populations or colonised populations. During the colonial period, it also described colonised populations as gangs, including in Malaya in Southeast Asia, where there was an anti-colonial movement in the 1950s and early 60s, in which the British colonial administration described uh, the anti-colonial dissidents as communist terror gangs. And also in colonial Kenya, in which the anti-colonial movements there were described as terror gangs as well. And the book makes use of memoirs and other texts written by colonial administrators, such as Sir Frank Kitson's Gangs and Counter Gangs, in which the term gangs is used to describe these anti-colonial forces in ways that seek to not simply delegitimize 
these anti-colonial movements as being a kind of legitimate critique or a form of resistance to British colonial rule, but crucially as well to dehumanise the individuals who are engaged in resistance to the British Empire as well. And it's through tracing these kind of colonial histories that I seek to better understand British racism, not as something which has emerged on the British mainland since the Windrush generation and the emergence of multicultural Britain in the post-war period, but a form of racism which goes way beyond the shores of Britain and before the middle of the 20th century, out into the colonial period in places across Africa, Asia, um, and the Caribbean. That, that idea of a moving target or, or a, an evolving definition of gang, and, and what is so useful with sort of vaguely defined bodies is that those in power can, can sort of paint this broad brushstroke to keep individuals in their place and, and keep communities down. Racism is often based on, and, and you talk about this sort of an assumption of fixity, but it's also always evolving. So the, the, the thing that stays still is the white uh, supremacy. And then you can kind of pick the problem with other groups that are the example of, of wrongdoing. And you can pick out sort of cultural trends. For example, drill music is something that, that you write about as reasons to justify intervention. And... I was wondering if you could talk about sort of how that malleable means of inf- or, or of perpetuating moral panic functions and why it's been so successful, whether that's historically or today with, I mean, again, the most e- the simplest example to use in this conversation is gangs. What I would say is that part of racism's power is its, it's, it's, it's ability to shift and change in different geographical or historical or social contexts. So that while the meaning of gangs may mean one thing in colonial Kenya or uh, Malaya, it can mean something quite different um, in the context of Brixton or Toxteth or St Paul's in Bristol. But I think what's crucial um, about its power as well is the way in which it can be used to rationalise or justify certain types of violence or control against a specific category of people. Yet it doesn't necessarily have to completely be confined to this category of people, right? Race isn't a mathematical science. It's very difficult. In fact, it's impossible to draw clear scientific divides between how different categories of people are exploited or have violence and control imposed upon them. So let's take, for instance, things like the Terrorism Act, We know that the Terrorism Act in Britain, which enables um, the police to surveil and search and incarcerate people in new types of way, was introduced through the criminalisation of Muslim communities or people who are perceived Muslims. But that doesn't mean that it's only Muslims who end up on the receiving end of this particular power and this particular form of state violence and control. While, of course, they are disproportionately affected by it, unsurprisingly, given that it's the criminalisation of Muslim communities that helped to justify and rationalise the introduction of these forms of state power and control. We know that other people are affected by it as well. For instance, John Charles de Menzies, the Brazilian plumber who was shot dead by police, who purportedly suspected him of being a so-called terrorist. Or the mainly white and, and almost completely non-Muslim campaigners who stopped a deportation flight 
at an airport um, in Britain recently were also charged with terror offences. And so we see the ways in which uh, racism is the justification or the rationalisation for the introduction of new and different forms of state power, exploitation and violence. But once these forms of exploitation and violence have been established, we see them expand and use against other oppressed groups of people or other political dissidents. And so we see again the ways in which racism plays a really crucial role, not simply in oppressing specific categories of people, but also expanding state power and capitalist exploitation generally. Mm. Shit. <laughs> um, yeah, that's just really miserable to to think about. So, so I, I think maybe um, a, a a space to move on to is perhaps your work right now. You come to the end of your book talking about the sort of steps of uh, Black Lives Matter to undo these mechanisms or completely establish new mechanisms through which people can struggle and fight against. Um, domination and British policing. Yeah, so while the book kind of begins in 2011, apart from the historical chapter, and my research begins in 2011 with the police killings of a reggae artist called Smiley Culture and a young black man in Birmingham called Kingsley Burrell and then the police shooting of Mark Duggan a bit later that year. So the book ends with the rise of the Black Lives Matter movements that begin around 2014 and 2015 in solidarity with movements in the US in places like Ferguson and Baltimore and New York, but of course really come to a head in 2020, where we see the largest anti-racist protests in British history. Uh, But I think what's happening in 2021 is really crucial um, for understanding these movements, because what we've seen in 2021 are movements like Sisters Uncut and this new Kill the Bill coalition, which is bringing together the Black Lives Matter movements and organisations which arose 12 months beforehand, but combining it with with feminist movements, with trade union organisations, with Gypsy Roma traveller organisations, with sex worker groups, with a whole range of different organisations, not simply understanding their resistance to state powers being separate in relation to gender or class or ethnicity but understanding their resistance as being connected. And so what I mentioned before about colonisation being not simply a project about class and race, but also about gender, these forms of resistance to state power are also understood as being gendered and classed and racialized as well. So while groups like Sisters Uncut understand that they could never defeat gender-based violence through the expansion of a police and prison system, and that their resistance to gender-based violence has to be community-led, has to be about women making themselves and each other safe, and about men unlearning patriarchal norms. While Gypsy Roma traveller groups understand that their very way of life is being criminalised in ways that are connected to the criminalisation of Muslim communities, of black communities, and of migrants as suspected migrants. While the trade union movement understands that while this bill isn't directly aimed at trade unions, the criminalisation of protest is going to affect their workers and their struggles, and that queer people, women, racialised minorities exist within the memberships of their unions, and so therefore have an obligation to help protect their members in that regard, brings together a whole coalition of activists in a way that's I haven't seen before in my lifetime. 
And so while my book seeks to understand black resistance to British policing as an entry point into radical politics, it's not where radical politics ends. And I think the thing that exemplifies that better than I ever could in the pages of my book are the movements that we're seeing on the streets across Britain today in which this broad coalition of grassroots movements is coming together, not simply about a specific policy and piece of legislation, the policing crime evidence and sentencing bill being introduced by this Conservative government, but is also a movement against state power and prison and border power more generally, articulating a politics of abolition and articulating a vision of a world in which police and prisons are obsolete. I mean, I've been amazed by that. I've been amazed that abolitionism is occupying very popular space. Like that, the fact that people are wrapping their heads around the idea and more and more people are joining from many different corners and realizing that de-escalation and means that really serve individuals as opposed to means to police and dominate individuals are alternatives that we should be fighting for. They're not just sort of utopian ideals that we can keep dreaming on in La La Land. I think one of the things that abolition enables us to do, yeah, is to not simply see a vision for the future that we want, but also be able to make abolitionist reforms on a day-to-day basis, right? Replace the, our society's reliance on police and prison power with empowered and better resourced youth provision and mental health services and council housing and union membership and support for survivors of domestic violence and services for people with addiction problems and all of the kinds of things that we can do to, today now that doesn't that doesn't require entering the barricades and confronting the state head on but can start to develop the alternatives in that visionary world that we all want to build and we need to build if we want to have a safer more prosperous future for the generations that come after us hmm. yeah that's wonderfully exciting sort of that understanding that it's not like a one point victory. It's not like victory or loss. It's care and, and, and these elements of care and, and reform are little victories because let's be honest, like burnout is real and, and we're not going to get to zero police and zero prisons tomorrow. So that's really exciting. But I, I've got like no time at all. So I, I wanted to talk about quickly Keir Starmer saying that like Black Lives Matter was a moment and then apologizing for what he said and proposing that he's, he would sort of take like unconscious bias training or, or whatever it was and and I wanted to quickly talk about like that superficiality that of diversity training and diversity measures and and those kinds of things and the limitations and distractions that that provides in modern resistance and, and radical resistance today I know that's a huge question for two minutes but <laughs> but if we could touch on it I'd be grateful I think like many things that Keir Starmer has done, he's overlooked the radicalism of today's current anti-racist movements. Whilst training um, and um, other forms of education were considered to be the silver bullets for ending racism maybe a decade or two decades ago, where the assumptions of the Stephen Lawrence inquiry um, reigned supreme. Today, the movements for abolition that we've been talking about won't be seduced by such superficial overtures from slick suited politicians like Keir Starmer. And so while Keir Starmer fails immensely in his electoral attempts um, that that we're seeing in the local elections across Britain, 
while we see membership of the Labour Party reducing enormously, and while we see criticism um, of Keir Starmer emerging pretty consistently across anti-racist movements across this country, we should be unsurprised that he is thoroughly disengaged with the kinds of politics and demands that are being made by a movement larger than this country has ever seen against racism. And so electoral politics as we know it has been left behind by this movement. The limitations of the Westminster model and the centrist politics of a Labour Party yearning for the days of new Labour have been left in the dust by the Kill the Bill coalition and their allies. And so Keir Starmer has been left irrelevant, I think, unelectable, I would argue. And I think this movement is about challenging this current government, ensuring that the kinds of draconian policies that they're introducing are not simply repealed, but unenforceable, is the priority for a movement which is unwilling to waste its time engaging with a Labour Party, which is unwilling to listen and not equipped to engage with the kinds of visions for the future that this country and the world needs right now. I told you that Adam had one or two interesting things to say, didn't I? Thank you so much, Adam, and thank you, you lot, for listening. I'm going to be stopping the pod for a while so I can focus on writing my book, so this feels like a great episode to finish on. Please do keep in touch and keep following my content on Instagram at theydefined. I love hearing what people have thought and having conversations about, well, the binaries that divide us and the stories that define us. So on that note, thank you so much for supporting season two of They Defined. And until next time, stay safe, stay well, and please look after each other. Thank you.